Well, good morning. Welcome to worship this morning. You know, it is so good to worship with you all this morning. I was watching Rochelle just up here belting it out as we were singing, there is joy in the house of the Lord. And I was watching you all worship. I was watching your smiles on your faces. And I just thought, it is good to be in the house of the Lord together this morning. I am so glad you are here on this second Sunday of Lent where we are continuing our sermon series, This Conversation, called No Wonder They Crucified Him, where we are looking at the life of Jesus and maybe some new ways. And this morning, we're gonna look at the life of Jesus as a servant and what that means for you and I sitting here in 2022 this morning. Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. And if you have your Bibles open with you, or Bibles with you this morning, or at home, or maybe you want to pull up uh, the Bible app on your phone, I would encourage you to follow along. If not, the words will be on your screen as well. Matthew 20, starting in verse 20, says this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked him a favor. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right, and the other may sit at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus says, oh, you don't know what you are asking Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And so Jesus, he called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Can you all, can you all say that this morning? Not so with you. That's right. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we enter this scripture passage this morning, the first person we encounter is a mom who thinks she knows what's best for her children. As I was studying the passage this week, I couldn't help but go back to one of the biggest headlines in 2019 in which 57 people were indicted in a college admissions scandal in which parents who just wanted what was best for their children paid more than $25 million to get their already successful, their already educated, their already well-resourced children into elite colleges around the country. They wanted their children to be great. And I read that story and I read this scripture and I thought to myself, is there any length that a parent wouldn't go to to ensure the security of the children that they love? And then I thought maybe 
the ancient words of the Bible and maybe the culture that we experience today that they actually aren't really that far apart. I think we have something that we're going to learn this morning. The mom in Matthew's story, she's not identified it here, but we know from other places in scripture that her name is Salome. And Salome, over the last several years, has become a devoted follower of Jesus. In fact, at the time of the story, she is one of Jesus' inner circle. She is traveling with the disciples and another group of women as they travel up to Jerusalem to the Passover feast, just a couple of weeks before Jesus will be crucified. We will later see Salome again in the gospel narrative as we see her at the crucifixion of Jesus and we see her at the tomb of the resurrected Lord. And Salome, she is the mother, as the scripture tells us here, of two young disciples named James and John who have also turned their lives upside down over the last three years to follow the rabbi that people call Jesus. And when we get to Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, I know we want to dive right into this scene. We want to know what's going to happen next, but it's always important for us. It's always important for us as people of God, as people who value the scripture, that we take a moment to know where we're at in the story and to orient ourselves to the larger story of God so we don't miss what God has right in front of us, the meaning and the significance of the piece of the story that we're in. And so by the time we get to Matthew chapter 20, we are three quarters of the way through the gospel narrative as Matthew records it. And we see from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel that Jesus, he's teaching. His teaching ministry is growing and it's growing. And from the very beginning, he's consistently challenging Everything the people around them, every definition they used to define who they were and how they moved through their lives. In Matthew chapter 5, we read Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, sometimes called the Beatitudes, where Jesus goes on a mountainside and he, he gathers the disciples around him. And remember, James and John, they would have been there with them. And he starts to invite them in to the kingdom of God. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacekeepers, for they will be called the children of God. He says over and over again, you have said to orient your life around this set of rules and these things you know to be true, but I tell you, uh-uh, not so with you. You are not to be defined by what the world says you are to be defined I am inviting you in and calling you into a new way of life that's so upside down, that's so countercultural, you're not even going to recognize it when I tell you what it is. One of the most common refrains that Jesus used to describe this way of life throughout the scriptures is the kingdom of God is like. We see this phrase show up more than 120 times in the Gospels. Because you see, not only is Jesus teaching and preaching, not only is he giving lip service to the things that he wants the people to know using the Torah and the book of the law, but he's, he's capturing their imaginations. 
He's inviting them in to imagine what the picture of the kingdom of God is actually like. And he says this over and over again, the kingdom of God is like. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, where we start this story, where this vignette finds itself, we see that Jesus starts chapter 20, verse 1, the kingdom is God is like. He's still teaching these disciples and the people that are with them after three years. He's still trying to get them to get it. The kingdom of God is like. And Jesus tells the story of a wealthy landowner and some workers that he hires. And he says that uh, as the landowner is hiring the workers, he hires them all different times throughout the day. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you worked one hour or five hours or eight hours, the landowner, out of his goodness and abundance and out of his grace, he's going to pay you all the same wage. And the people in the story, they start to protest, I think probably as any of us would, And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, but here's the point of the story. He ends the parable and he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus says something like this similar in the book of Mark when he finds out that the disciples, they're walking on the road and they're having this argument among themselves over who is greatest in the kingdom. They just can't stop defining themselves by what the world says they are. And and so they're arguing and Jesus finds out they're arguing and what they're arguing about and he rebukes them. And he says to them here in the book of Mark, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and be the servant of all, he is flipping all of their cultural notions on their head about how they define who they are. And as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, it's also important to remember that remember, Jesus is not just teaching and preaching, he's not just using words, he's modeling everything that he teaches in every moment of his life. Every time he sees someone in the crowd that no one else sees because their position in this world is not valued. He looks at them and he sees them and he calls them by name and he pulls them out of the crowd and he lets them know they have value because he sees them. Every time he's a guest in someone's home and there's not enough room at the table, he pulls up a chair and he tells the people who never thought they would be invited to have dinner at the table to sit right next to him and to eat and to dine and to feast. Every time he encounters someone who has been rejected because they're too dirty or they're too poor or they're too sick, he reaches out and he physically touches them and he heals them from the inside out. He lets them know that they have a place in the kingdom of God. And with every encounter, with every interaction, with every kind and compassionate word, Jesus is establishing his greatness and his kingdom on this earth. And he's doing it by laying his position down. And James and John and Salome, they have been around for the whole thing. 
They've seen it all. They've, they've listened to him. They have heard what he has said. They had seen him interact and how he moves through life. And now they are traveling up to Jerusalem for what will be their last time, just two weeks before the crucifixion of Jesus. And we already see in the gospel story, actually right before this vignette, Jesus predicts his death for the third time in the story. Immediately preceding this scene, and they just, they don't, they don't get it. They just don't get what he's really all about. And instead, maybe like you and I may do the same, they are, ex- they are sensing that something is happening, that, that maybe the kingdom of God is finally here, that maybe the moment they have been waiting for, for Jesus to step into the greatness and the glory as the world would define it as his, their Messiah and their deliverer finally steps into his rightly position on this earth as king of the Jews, maybe they feel it and they think, oh, This is our time. We've got to seize this opportunity. And so they push their way into this kind of semi-intimate moment with Jesus. And the question at the top of their mind, given all they have been through together and what is about to transpire, the question at the top of their mind is, what's in it for me? I was thinking, isn't this so true of human nature? When we see someone rising to greatness, when we see something good about to happen, when we see someone attract people and have followers, one of two things happens. We think, either I gotta be part of this, I gotta get on the ground floor because wherever they're going, I wanna go with them, or we do everything we can to tear them down and to make sure what they're trying to do won't succeed. And we see in the gospel narratives that both things are true. And the mother of James and John, she wants her kids to be in on the ground floor. And so she goes and she kneels before Jesus and she says, I have a favor to ask. When you achieve greatness, when you become king, when you establish your kingdom on this earth, Take my boys with you. It's the college admission scandal back in the ancient world. Take my boys with you. Make them second and third in command. And I just imagine Jesus looking at her with kind of pity and compassion because he doesn't rebuke her. But he says and said, you just don't understand what you're asking. And he looks at James and John and he says, do you think you want to be part of where I'm going? And of course, they're, they're eager and ambitious and the, the, the world is still defining how they define themselves. And they say, of course, that we can. And then the other disciples, they hear what's going on and they, they hear that James and John are jockey, jockeying for a position and they get a little indignant and they get frustrated. And so Jesus calls the whole, whole group to be, together And he looks at them and he says, oh, guys, you've just, you've missed it. You've missed the way of the kingdom that I've been laying out for you all along. And he says, maybe the rest of the world defines power and success and authority and greatness by what position they hold and how they can dominate others because of it. But Jesus looks at them and he says, but not so with you. Instead... 
Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. You must give up all of your rights, all of your desires. You must lay them down to someone who's going to have authority over your life. Because just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life is a ransom for many. You know, so many of us today, when we think about being a servant, the first thing that we think about are the things that we do for others. The ways that we volunteer, the ways that we help at church, the ways we show kindness to others, the way we tangibly serve our neighbors and love them as ourselves. And that is part of servanthood. It's part of what Jesus did. We already saw it in the video this morning. It's part of what it means to be a servant. But I think if we start there, if we start there, we miss the bigger invitation that God is calling us to, to be a servant in his kingdom. Because the Jewish leaders and the Roman government didn't crucify Jesus because he watched the neighbor's dog while they went on vacation. They didn't crucify Jesus because he took a chicken and rice casserole to a friend when she had a baby. They didn't crucify Jesus because he chose to serve in children's ministry or maybe donated food to the food pantry, all good things, but that's not why they crucified him. They crucified him because he dared to redefine the world's definition of greatness. They crucified him because he challenged the social structures and authority of the day by telling anyone who had ears to hear that everything they believed in, everything they held on to, everything that they used to define their value, their success, their worth, everything that brought them status and security and pride and pleasure and influence and material gain, that everything they thought made them great. It was temporal. It was useless. In fact, it was the opposite of what the kingdom of God would look like. And then Jesus turns around and he elevates the people that the great ones in the world despised. And he gave them value and worth simply because they were created in the image of the most high God. They crucified Jesus because he challenged them to orient their lives not simply around the action of serving, but around what it means in the core of our identity to call themselves servants of God. To call themselves servants of God, do you see the difference? There is an act of serving, and then there is something bigger, there's a bigger story that we're called into to be a servant at the core of who we are. And so what do we do with that? How do we live that out today? What does that mean for us? Well, one, servanthood begins by recognizing our position as children of God. You know, the longer I'm at uh, my faith journey, the more convinced I am that everything in our Christian journey comes back to who we are. It comes back to two questions. Do we believe that God is who he says he is? And do we believe that we are who he says we are? Everything in our Christian journey comes back to our identity in Christ. 
And part of knowing our identity in Christ is knowing that we don't have to fight for position in this world because Jesus himself has already established our position. That as created beings of the most high God, we have been loved before the foundation of the world. That when God created us, he knew every hair on our head. He knew all of our days before one of them came to be. And that when we place our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the redemption of our souls, that God assigns us value because we simply are his children. Because in the richness of his mercy, he lavishes us with grace. And there is nothing we can do, nothing we can achieve, nothing that we can fail at. There is no past, there is no present, there is no future event that can make God love us any more or any any less. Our position as his beloved children is secure and it is good. And when we know that, when we can first and foremost define ourselves by our position before a most holy God, when we know who we are, we can take our eyes off of ourselves. We don't have to clamor and scratch and claw and posture and climb for position or status, nor do we have to worry when someone else does. We can let others go first. We can sacrifice our own desires. We can sacrifice our own wants, our own needs, and we can give up our earthly position for the benefit of someone else because we know our position in the kingdom of God. I don't know how many young people we have here this morning. I'm thinking that uh, because we turned the clocks ahead or back or whichever way it was, maybe we don't have that many. But I I just want to say a word to the young people who are here with us this morning because as a parent, as a youth mentor in this church, as a staff member who loves and values you greatly, I see the struggle that your generation is going through with defining yourselves as the world defines you and what it looks like to define yourself first and foremost by your position as a child of God. Everything in this world will tell you that the position in your life is determined by the world's definition of greatness. They will tell you that your position in this life is defined by what your grades are, what your test scores are, what college you get into, what friend group you're part of, what team you make, how many followers you have, how many likes you get, what kind of house your family lives in. Everything in this world is going to tell you that success in those things define who you are. But friends, I need to tell you and the people in this room, we need to let our young people know, but that is not so with them It is not so with you. Our young people need to know that their position is eternally secure in the kingdom of God and that the world's definition of greatness does not define them. Number two, servanthood grows in our lives when we ask God to expand our perspective. Let me ask, how's your perspective these days? I, uh, a few months ago, was driving down Butterfield Road on my way to work. 
and uh, traffic had slowed down. Of course, I was running a little bit late to work because I always seem to be running a little bit late to work, and traffic had slowed down in my lane, but the other lane was just kind of whipping by, and my lane was stopped, and I couldn't exactly see what was going on in front of me, and so I started to get a little bit frustrated because we weren't moving. And then as we inched forward little by little, I realized that um, my lane, again, the person in front of me just kept stopping and all these cars were going by and I thought, what in the world is going on? And then I got to that spot in the road and when it was finally my turn, I, I looked at the road ahead of me and I finally understood what was happening because the reason everyone was stopping was because there was glass all over the road and there was bits of, of car bumpers and car parts on the road. And so I stopped as well and, and there's a guy behind me in this big red pickup truck. And I can tell he's super angry. And one of the reasons I can tell he's super angry is because he's actually bald. And I can see his, his face just getting red and red and red. It's like going all the way up to the top of his head. And he's pointing at me. And I can tell he's saying not nice things about me. And he doesn't know why I'm not going. And I sat there and I thought, you know what? I know why he's so angry. He's angry because he can't see what I see in front of me. He doesn't see the brokenness on the road before me. His lack of perspective is blinding him to the reality of what is actually true. And I was thinking about the fact that there are people all around us who Jesus calls us to serve, whose roads look much different than the ones we travel on. And if we truly want to live a life of servanthood, we need to ask God what we're blind to. We need to ask him to open our eyes, to expand our perspectives, to value people as God values them, especially, especially to value the people who are not defined in this world or how this world would define them when it comes to success, position, and greatness. Servanthood grows in our lives when we ask God to expand our perspective. Number three, the posture of our hearts will determine our servanthood. In other words, servanthood is first and foremost an attitude of the heart. It is the way that we move through life and have our being. I was uh, reminded of this last night. I had a really ironic moment of God. Our son, um, Clay, was home for college this week on spring break. And uh, we took him, Eric and I took him to the airport last night. And uh, we got a little bit of a late start. And uh, when we were leaving, Eric remembered that we had to get gas. And so we pulled into Costco on 22nd Street, and I don't know how many of you ever go to the Costco on 22nd Street in Oak Brook, but it is like, it is a zoo all of the time. That gas station is just a mess. And so we pull in, and there's cars going this way and that way, and, and we're waiting in line to get our spot, and there's a woman who uh, wants to go in front of us. And so uh, Eric, being the nice guy that he is, he waves her through, and we think that she's going to the exit, and really she just goes right in front of us, and she goes right to the pump that we were going to go through, and we had to wait. I thought, oh, is this God what it looks like for the first to be last and the last to be first? And so we got out of there, we got my son to the airport, and I came home, and I walked into my house, and I realized that um, I was out of half and half. 
And with me, I don't know if I have any coffee drinkers here this morning, but when I'm at a half and half in my house, it's a, it's a small crisis. And so we walked into the house, and the minute we walked in and I remembered I was at a half and half, I grabbed the keys and I said, I'm going to run up to the 7-Eleven uh, and go ahead and get some half and half for this morning. And I walk into the 7-Eleven and there is, uh, I grab the half and half, I'm standing in line, and there's several people in line in front of me, and there's a, a young man who is arguing with a teller about uh, his age and why the, the fact that he can't buy lottery tickets, and he's very frustrated, and he's very upset, and there's another couple arguing behind me, they're bickering, there's a loud buzzer going off every time I think someone buys cigarettes, there's a loud siren or buzzer that goes off, and I was standing there for probably 10 minutes just waiting just waiting, and I thought, oh God, you're so funny. <laughs> Aren't you so funny that you are having me check in this moment my posture, the attitude of my heart as I wait and am reminded of what it's like for the last to be first and the first to be last. I think our posture, our attitude of our heart, we find that in just, it's the little things that we do because how we serve others and how we see others, it's evident in the everyday communications of our lives, how well we listen. How often do we interrupt? How do we wait in line? When we are going to a door, do we let other people go first or do we clamor for our turn? What are the words that we use with our spouses or our children or our roommates after a long day? How in our daily lives do we posture our hearts so that we show other people that we value them more than we value ourselves? The fourth thing that servanthood reminds us of, this way of life that Jesus calls us into, is to ask us how we are using our lives to pour out as an act of servanthood for the sake of others. I'm so glad we watched that video this morning of um, the Ukraine and the, the drive that this church did for the Ukraine because there is a piece of our servanthood that we have to know our position so that we know where we're at in the kingdom of God. We have to have the right perspective and ask God to speak into that. We have to have the posture right in our hearts so that we move through life as a servant. But we also at some point have to do something. We have to get our hands dirty. We have to act out our faith. And over the last couple weeks, um, I just can't get the images out of my head of the people of Ukraine fleeing their homes to bordering countries and the ways they have been met with food and with clothing and with shelter and with hugs and with prayers. As Eric said this morning, more than two million refugees have fled and found shelter somewhere else. And I was reading an article in Christianity Today about um, some of the churches in a suburb of Ukraine called Irpin. And uh, this, this city, Christianity Today says, is known as uh, the Wheaton of the Ukraine. There are all kinds of evangelical organizations and churches there. And I read the story of a pastor who is serving there in his church, he's just decided to open up the doors. And he says that the church has been there for 20 years and they've never had any neighbors set foot in their church, but now they have people living in their basement and they're praying together and people who have never come before, they're calling each other friends. 
And the head of the missions committee is a real estate agent, and she um, turned into the co a cook. And she's preparing three meals a day for more than 200 people. Other volunteers are evacuating <coughs> refugees to western part of Ukraine at a risk to themselves. They are busing one to 200 people every day. And when the Russian invasion began, they actually bused 3,000 people out of the country. There are stories in the suburbs of the people of God going on right now, how they're using their hands, how they're laying down their lives, how they're giving up their position and their power to serve other people. And then in this article, the pastor says that as all of this is going on, he gets a Google alert on his phone to remind him that he's supposed to be at a conference uh, that day. And he looks at his calendar and he looks at that conference, that invite, and he says, you know what? It's not where I'm supposed to be. God has given us a new ministry. Our conference now is with the homeless, is with the handicapped, with the non-believers of our town. And he says the Christian leaders who remain are incarnated witnesses of Jesus Christ. Position, perspective, posture, pouring out, if that is not the definition of what redefines greatness in the kingdom of God to point to the hope of the resurrected Christ, I don't know what does. We began this morning with the story of a mom kneeling at the feet of Jesus, advocating on behalf of her children. And I asked you, is there any length a parent wouldn't go to ensure the future security of the children that they love? And perhaps maybe it's not so with us, but it is always true of Jesus. Philippians 2 reminds us that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God our Father. Amen. Since Lent began on Ash Wednesday, we have been inviting you all to consider a question. A question about where we in our lives need more of Jesus and we need less of us. And so we are doing this each and every week and I'm gonna invite you to do it now as the band comes and just underscores us for a moment to reflect on those four areas. Our position, our perspective, our posture, our pouring out, and where in those moments, where in those spaces in our life do we say, God, I need, I need more of you, and I need less of me. Take a minute to reflect on that. The worship team's gonna underscore for a minute, and then we're gonna finish our service by pouring out our hearts in worship 
to God as we serve him today.